Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of the Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, my co host, Alan Ben Joseph, and one of Ireland's leading lights in the watchmaking industry, John McGonagall. John, it's a pleasure to have you here and to talk to you today about your past, present, and future, looking ahead with your new brand, Ilan Watches. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on, Rob and Alan. It's a pleasure. It's good to get you on the airwaves at last. We we struggled a little bit with some technical issues beforehand, but you know, I really appreciate your your patience and getting it sorted and figuring it out because we have been looking forward to this one for quite some time. You are a man on an island in many ways. Uh, there aren't a huge amount of uh, big names in Irish watchmaking, but yours has spread across the continent for many reasons. Could you please give us a little bit of a background into your life before you got into watchmaking and how your journey in this industry began? Well, I suppose the inspiration for watchmaking came from my father, who worked in the newspapers. He was a compositor by trade. But he used to uh, repair clocks and many other things for for people. He was very, very handy. And uh, we used to always have uh, people dropping off repairs to the house. And uh, so I grew up in that environment where we had clocks either for repair or under repair all around the place. And we wherever we had flat surfaces in our house, you had a clock or rather than pictures on walls we had clocks hanging so it seemed like it wasn't a surprise that i was drawn towards uh, clock making or watchmaking but you really have to have a a desire to do that and uh, i was always fascinated with mechanical things and um i thought i'd end up in engineering or something like that and it my father suggested the watchmaking school in blanchardstown in dublin and uh, once I started there, I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Uh, I really fell for watches. So when was that exactly? What what year are we talking? It was 1986 when I started the college, and I it's a three it was a three year course. Crazy. And yeah, it is crazy because uh, it sounds uh, it's the equivalent of saying the 1940s to me. For my children, (laughs) Uh, which is kind of terrifying, but um, it doesn't seem that long ago. (laughs) No, I can I can imagine. Funnily enough, I was born not too far away from that college the year before you started. So when I was a little baby, we would have been in the same city. And now here we are, thirty six years later. I thought I recognised you. Uh, (laughs) I haven't grown much. That's for sure. Where are you from? I was born in Dublin. Oh, okay. I. Grew up most of my childhood in Manchester, so I was I was only a tiny wee baby in uh, in those days. One of my first jobs was in Manchester. Uh, I worked there for a year. Oh, crazy! That's funny how these things like overlap over time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You went to college and you qualified, and then what happened immediately afterwards? Did you go work for yourself, or did you go work for someone else? And in what capacity did you do that? My first job was with a clockmaker in uh, Cork, uh, Philip Stokes. Uh, himself and his father, they used to do all of the outdoor clocks, uh, the terror clocks and exhibition clocks, if you want, uh, around the country. They both installed them and uh, and made them. And uh, he also had clock restoration. That was the main part of his business. And I did his watch repairs. So I did that for about six months. And when I started, I, I told him that I'm really trying to get a job somewhere else uh, because I knew I wanted to go as far as I could in watchmaking and at the time in the 80s in Ireland uh, you would be very very lucky to see a Rolex or an Amiga come through the door not mind complications or anything like that and the first opportunity I had to go uh, after spending a fabulous six months in Cork and it really is my favorite city in Ireland and uh, it was a real pleasure working for Philip but uh, I got a call to start this job in Manchester uh, in Altrincham, and it was a branch of an American chain of stores that dealt in very high-end watches such as Rolex, Patek Philippe, Piaget, brands like that. And the idea was that I would work in Manchester for a year, and because I'm, I was working within the organization, it would be easier to process a green card to move to their one of their branches in 
Florida. After a year of working on some really quite nice watches, I started to feel a little bit of frustration because uh, it felt like I was taking apart these watches, cleaning them and carefully putting them back together. My interaction with the watches was quite superficial. And I really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of how they actually worked, how they were put together, uh, rather than nervously just taking them apart, cleaning them and putting them back together in the hope that they would work at the very end. So I knew I had to go to Switzerland. So my every effort was to get to Switzerland thereafter. I, I didn't go to the States at the end. Funny old uh, journey that you've taken. And bizarrely, I spent a lot of my early years in Cork or nearby in Crosshaven, oh. where some of my friends live, bizarrely. And I agree, it's, it's one of the most beautiful places in Ireland, one of my favorite places in, in the world. And uh, you know, the British School of Watchmaking is not too far away from Altrincham. It's on the Altrincham tram line from Manchester City Centre, Dane Road. And that's where I trained as a watchmaker. So oh, okay. I'll tell you what, what a bizarre uh, load of coincidence and florida you never made it over to florida well good on you because i hate florida it's too muggy <laughs> yeah what were you doing in crosshaven like uh, did you like i go down there a lot well just coincidentally my dad's best mate a guy called dr ken higgs uh resided there with his family they knew each other when they worked together at trinity college in dublin mm. and um after we left dublin we moved down to well, Wicklow, uh, Stratford on Slaney, where I spent my very early years. And we just saw them frequently in Crosshaven because, yeah, my dad didn't have many friends. He still doesn't have many friends. He's a bit of an arsehole, but um, he's, he's a lovely guy, really. <laughs> but Ken's a lovely bloke. So, yeah, we used to spend a lot of time down there with him and his wife, Betty, and their kids, Emily and Rowan. And Rowan was my my hero when I was younger. He was a few years older and... Um, I loved it there. I thought that their house in Crosshaven was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, obviously the setting on the coast with the cliffs and whatnot is really nice as well, but their bathroom was entirely clad in pine, like floors, walls, ceilings. It was like super like 1990s Alpine chic. Yeah. So, you know, I thought it was amazing. Probably lined the uh, the road towards Switzerland for me in those early days without me realizing, but yeah, that's, that's why. Um, anyway, Enough about those curious overlaps. I'm going to shut up and let Alan ask a question because I know he's itching to get into the conversation. And like he said, he's he's been a fan of yours for a long time and uh, I can't wait to hear what it is he wants to know from you. Thank you so much, Rob. I almost fell asleep. All kidding aside, um, it's actually a beautiful bridge to, to, to the Irishness of everything. So John, nice to meet you. I've been actually admiring you from afar. And you and your brother are together with the legendary and infamous Dutch brothers, the Grunefeld brothers. That's right, yeah. The two magic, the two magic duos. Oh, we're very close friends. Uh, in fact, uh, Stephen and Tim, they shared a house for a year when Stephen first moved to Switzerland. Yeah, there were two young bachelors in their 20s in Switzerland. You can just imagine what that was like. Uh, they managed to get some work in as well. They still think they're batches by the quantity of beers they consume. <laughs> they do, yeah. We, <laughs> I've fallen by the wayside. I can't keep up with those guys. But uh, they're, they're great. Yeah. They're brilliant. And what they've done as well is absolutely outstanding. So did you guys, I believe you all, well, you worked at Audemars Piquet. I know they did. Did you work at the same period in Le Brasseuse? I did, but uh, they didn't really work in Audemars Piquet. They worked in that offshoot place, <laughs> Renault Papi down the road. Uh, they worked in uh, Le Loc. And at the time, it was just called Renault Papi. It had been bought by Audemars Piquet. You know, they renamed the, the, the plant, I think, after Bart and Tim had left. But I worked in, in Le Brasseau. We were friends at the time because there was a, a big expat community of, of watchmakers. And we used to spend weekends in each, each other's respective valleys, <laughs> either Le Loc or Le Sentier Le Brasseau. Uh, so we were friends with people like uh, Vianne Halter, Stephen Forsey, Peter Speak, uh, Andrea Streller, you know, the, the list goes on, Stepan Sakhaneva. Uh, we were kind of a, a gang a little bit, you know, it was great fun. So, yeah, we, we saw a lot of each other in those days. Uh, subsequently, when Bart and Tim had returned to Holland, I did some work with Renault Papi. So I worked in the same workshop as them, but not at the same time. To get our dear listeners quickly up to speed, today, John is uh, running his own brand 
which sounded like my name, so it became almost my favorite brand out there because <laughs> it sounds like Elon, Alon, Elon, but it actually means island, right? In Gaelic. That's correct. Yes. For our listeners who are on the road while they're listening to this amazing interview, it's spelled O I L E A N. And you can find it online at Alan.watch. So it's O I L E A N dot watch. Sorry, John, you wanted to say something. Yeah, it, it's a tricky one because uh, I was looking for, and I couldn't use my name because uh, I had work started McGonagall watches with my brother Steve and and uh, it was tricky to work in two different locations Stevens in Switzerland I'm in Ireland and uh, so I opted to uh, to leave and Stephen is continuing with McGonagall watches and I, uh, I was looking for a name that uh, would be a brand name that I was comfortable with uh, that would kind of represent what I do, where I am. And I came up with the Irish word for, for island, which is Elon. And it kind of neatly, is, it's a nice metaphor for my place in the watchmaking world off on my own. And also it describes geographically where I am. Island that is, Elon it is. Elon, so I need to have one on my uh, wrist now. Absolutely. Uh, I maybe want to trace back. Um, usually we go chronologically through somebody's uh, track record in uh, the watchmaking industry on this show. But it's actually very fascinating because both of you brothers are epic watchmakers and you have your uh, major mark in the Swiss and global watchmaking industry. So during the pandemic, you amicably amicably split with your brother. Huh? He's in Switzerland, as you mentioned, and you're in Ireland. You started in the pandemic, Alan Watches. Maybe you could share your philosophy for, well, we know why you start your own brand, uh, mostly due to logistics. So the current model we see now is is lovely. I believe you used old stocks of Valjoux's 88 calibers, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah, beautifully made bare. It's not skeletonized, but they're blank dials or transparent dials. And I believe you use titanium cases. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So maybe let's start with that. I, I love titanium. Why did you opt for titanium? Because most gentlemen like you who really work with hotologerie, because that's what you and your brother always did and still do. Why titanium, John? I like titanium myself. I, I like titanium and steel, which is the other option I was considering. And I wanted the emphasis of the watch really to be on the craftsmanship of the movement. And rather than having resources tied up in a precious uh, metal case, I thought that if I could have a finish that would be normally applied to a precious metal case to a base metal case, if I could call it, or a non-precious metal case, that it would have a very, very similar value. I think um, Audemar Pica led the way with the Royal Oak, where they started uh, treating the finishes on a steel case the way you would on a precious metal case. It was a bit of a, a revolutionary move back then. And I think that people have gotten used to uh, the idea of uh, very high-end watches not being in a precious metal case. It felt comfortable for me, that idea. And I wanted a watch that was a daily wear for a lot of people. And uh, so I think, uh, again, uh, a non-precious metal case fits that bill. Also, it's a big movement. I don't like feeling a heavy watch on my wrist. So the combination of the big movement and the very light detaining case makes for kind of a, a neutral weight. You can feel it's on your wrist, but it, it's not. you don't have that very heavy weight on your wrist. So again, it makes it more agreeable for a daily wear. It's lovely. And I, I love the transparent dial. Is it a sapphire transparent dial you used? Yes. It's the only uh, value 88 I've ever seen where the underdial work is visible. I didn't want to make it too cluttered. The visibility or the legibility of uh, a watch is very important to me. Rather than having something skeletonized or the, me the mechanism very prominent. Uh, I tried to fade it back somewhat by uh, putting it under a smoked sapphire crystal. 
So you can see that the, you can see the mechanism, but it uh, fades back to enable the legibility to be clearer. I absolutely love it. I'm a huge fan of smoked sapphire dials in general because I'm actually not a fan of skeletonization. I like legibility and clarity, but every so often it's a real treat to be able to see what's going on on the dial side of a movement. And I, I honestly think this is the perfect way to do it. And it looks so cool with the uh, with the day and the month windows right there at the very top and the symmetry is so beautiful and the hands are a great design as well so you know i'll stop waxing <laughs> lyrical about this uh, this wonderful watch on the front side and turn it over because there is a very specially shaped bridge in the middle of the movement am i right in thinking that's inspired by a harp that's absolutely correct there are a few harp motifs uh, around the watch more obviously there's one on the crown if you look at the side of the lugs as well to try and Thin watch, I added some detail to the side of the lugs and there. Again, it's a hard motif. I didn't want to over, overdo it. Um, in everything I've done with Elon and what we tried to achieve with McGonagall as well was uh, putting in styling cues that were suggestive, subtle, uh, rather than very obvious. But the, the bridge, it, it worked well because it, it's very dominant. And it's also a an opportunity to show off some very nice finishing as well. Yeah, I think it works fantastically. It is subtle enough, like if you didn't know what you were looking at, or if you didn't have any sort of previous experience with Irish iconography, I guess it might float under the radar entirely, which is the best way for it to be. It's not too shouty. Is the bezel slightly concave? It is. Impose a constraint on myself from the outset in that I wanted outside diameter of the watch not to exceed 40 millimeters. Again, I'm thinking about wearability. But in doing so, because it's a thick movement, you have a chronograph mechanism, you've got the time-only mechanism, and then you've got the calendar mechanism. Plus, you have in the center, you have got four hands stacked on top of each other. And it just makes for a very tall movement. And that tallness is emphasized the more you reduce the diameter. It would have been easier to design the watch if it was a 42 mil, but I didn't want to watch that big. And uh, so I had to do a lot of uh, visual tricks to reduce the height. And uh, as you uh, nicely observed, the, uh, the concave bezel is one of those tricks. But another one is if you look at this, uh, the watch from its side, the uh, case tapers as it extends to the back. So it's uh, 40 mil on the on the top and the case tapers to, I think it's 38 mil at the back. And all of these are an effort to slim down the watch visually. And I, I think it works, you know. And, and it's lovely. And I love the fact that you hollowed out the lugs on the outside of the case. It's very beautifully done. Um, I, I am buzzing of excitement and listening to you. So I have a zillion questions. One that worries me the most I read that you only make eight a year, so I assume you make them all yourself by hand. Is the case made in Ireland? No, it's not, no. Uh, I use established case. I, we've never tried to make a, a, a case because it's not my speciality. And, uh, but um, the, I, I don't work on my own. Uh, I have a, I'm very lucky to be joined now recently by uh, watching netmaker uh, Nick Wolf, who has... Gained great experience both in Patek Philippe. He was a teacher in the Wolstep School, and he worked with uh, Roger Smith for a couple of years as well uh, on the Isle of Man. Um, so, uh, but even with the two of us together, uh, we're just making eight a year. Now we could get more out, but I I really want some time and space to perhaps work on other things and develop the next model. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, there are two of us at the moment. I understand. Amazing. Amazing for him to join you. Congratulations for both of you. You need that time to make this beautiful watch. Do you have limitations on the accessibility of this legendary old caliber? I mean, I assume ETA that owns Valjoux today, they don't make them, do they still? No, they don't. Uh, these movements were made perhaps in the 1970s. And I have, uh, I have enough movements to keep me going for quite a while the method of making these watches or crafting these watches is 
really what imposes the the eight watches a year limit because it's incredibly slow. I think it would have been easier if we had started with unfinished components that weren't put together, but we were starting with watches that were essentially functional. And we've by stripping them down to a component part, you're, you have the job of building everything up. But before you do so, you have to take everything apart in a, in a very... So I'm machining parts uh, to separate the different elements the way I can finish each element. And then I have to make link, linking parts to put them back together again. So it's, it's very slow. I thought with Nick coming in that we'd find ways of going much quicker, but uh, both of us are kind of in, in agreement. This is what we have to do to get the watch that uh, we hope at the very end no quick way of making it it's it's just slow work or else the work gets compromised we can't do that to obtain one you do direct to consumer is everything sold to you or do you have actually retailers in the world that work together with you well i've been working with pietro from uh, the limited edition yes he's lovely pietro is uh, an absolute prince he's a wonderful man to work with and he has done an awful lot for uh, a, a so many independents and i think uh he's trusted by independents and clients alike because he's he takes the time to understand and communicate what it is we do so uh other than that uh it's direct sales petro indeed is a great ambassador for independent watchmaking he's a role model for me as a retailer and we already booked him to come on the real-time show so we're very excited for that and it's amazing to hear that you have uh, the same feeling he also works with another irishman uh, johnny McElheron, yeah who uh, has his own website and uh, but uh, the the two of them have they've done enough lot of work for independent watchmakers It's a uh, thirty-two thousand euro before tax and delivery charges. So amazing! And what's the current waiting list if you would um, put a deposit down today? It's uh, mid twenty twenty-five. Wow! I'm happy to hear that there's so many people queued up. So congratulations on that. My last question. I'm sorry. I'm hijacking the show a bit, Rob. I apologize. I'm a bit too excited. Um, you already said that you wanted some time to think of new stuff. Is there a new watch or and or model in the pipeline? And is there something you could share? There is, and it's very tentative at this stage. All I can say really is it will be more handmade uh, in that it's uh, not working off an existing caliber. So it, it will be probably a more expensive watch, more likely a more expensive watch. And... Uh, uh, but it's still some time off. We've uh, no, Our first commitment really is uh, taking care of the people who've placed orders with us. And I am trying to squeeze in some development time at the, at the same time, but it, it's uh, our priority is taking care of our clients first. That's really interesting to go even higher end and certainly an idea that I think will meet with success. But I'm kind of keen as a... Uh, Irish-born man myself, to see more Irish brands on the horizon. So is there any thought to creating a more affordable entry-level brand, which takes some of the things you've learned from your uh, high-complication work and makes them more widely available to the public? And maybe start, yeah, starting a new brand, I guess, would be the way to do it because you, you set your stall out with Villon now and you know that's where it's going to function in that top end right there. But do you think there's any scope for that, like a, a more accessible Irish brand? There are a few more accessible Irish brands. Uh, already Stephen, my brother Stephen, has, uh, has a, a second brand, Magon Watches. Don't have the exact price, but it's in around the 10,000 mark, which is it's more accessible. It's still a lot of money for what it is. I think it's very, very good value. And uh, you also have Sidereus, Brian Leach, another Irish brand. Uh, very very beautiful watches and again the price i i, I don't know exactly but i think it's, it could be about four thousand or something like that and you have um uh, graham houghton with uh, his two brands sas watches and melita watches and uh they're more affordable again very high-end 
design. Um, indeed, I, Graham has worked with me uh, on Elon for the, with the design work. So there's um, there's a fair bit going on here, but I think there's scope to do a lot more. I'm planning on giving a talk, uh, which actually will be live streamed. I'm giving two talks, one at the end of this month and one at the end of next month on that very thing. The talks are divided into two. The first one is, sorry if I'm plucking this unannounced, you weren't aware of this, but uh, one of the talks is on how watches are made. And the second talk is on how the various complications work from turbulence, chronographs, miniature repeaters, perpetual calendars. But the main thrust behind it is to get people thinking about a watchmaking industry here in Ireland. Okay, well, the first thing is you're more than welcome to plug anything that you're doing. In fact, we encourage you actively because, you know, this is a show that is focused on what's really going on in watchmaking, real people, real talk, as Alan likes to say, about watches, about everything to do with time. So if you're giving some presentations, then I'm sure our listeners, the listeners that are already listening to the Insider Insiders or the Insiders Insider podcast, as they're calling it, then they're going to want to listen to what you have to say as well. So how can people listen to these talks that you're giving? Well, I can give you the details after this with links to the talks. It's, uh, I'm addressing the Institution of Irish Engineers in in Dublin, and it's a it's a live talk. It's in an auditorium, but it will be live streamed as well, and I can send the links to you afterwards. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. So, for anyone listening to this show on the way to work or while you're pottering around a house go on to www.therealtime.show and check out the episode page for john's interview and you'll be able to find the links there so you can uh, check out his talk and follow the live stream along there so you mentioned that one of these talks is going to be focused on complications what is your favorite complication and why i really like perpetual calendars it's nearly more practical than a chronograph an awful lot of people like chronographs, but don't actively use them that much, you know. Whereas the perpetual calendar is every time you look at the dial, you're, that information is there. And I just think it's a very elegant function. It's uh, The hook for me is how the mechanism actually works. And I think if people understood how uh, through cams and, and levers, uh, that you can get a little bit of computing going, <laughs> uh, they'd appreciate it all the more. Also, it can be quite a slim complication as well, which, again, going back to wearability, it appeals to me. I love working on many complications. I uh, I love miniature repeaters. They're, they're wonderful to tune to a high state of performance, you know, to get a the good rhythm, uh, the right speed, the good, clear, loud sound. It's a wonderful challenge to work on them. Uh, but I think functionally, I don't know how much, how many people actually use the repeater every single day to get the, the time told, if you know what I mean. Whereas I, I really, really love them. I think a perpetual calendar is something that you would use every day if you wore it every day. It's certainly a good answer because you're absolutely right. It's an elegant and endlessly useful complication i personally do fall down in the rather generic chronograph crew but i would say i think i i never know whether it's a flyback or a ratropant which one i prefer i do love a flyback chronograph i just love Mm. like the sort of immediacy of everything and the watch i'm wearing most at the moment is my glassiter original uh panamatic date the 1970s vibing orange special edition and that's got a flyback on it which is you know vastly overworked for a chronograph complication because you're quite right in saying that a lot of people like chronographs but rarely use them i'm fiddling around with mine constantly but one of my favorite movements that i ever came across was the omega caliber 1151 you know the little one in the mark 40 for example which has like the date the day the month and even a day night indicator or a 24 hour indicator if you prefer and like all that information being present on the dial it's the closest thing i have to a perpetual calendar it's not a perpetual calendar mm-hmm. yeah. um but i do agree that when i wear that watch I'm, I'm sort of i think charmed is the word actually i'm charmed by it you know how simple a thing it appears to be but how much there actually is going on behind the dial to make all of that information presentable in a legible and digestible way in such a small space so 
yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from in that regard. But will we see other complications from Elon in the future? Will we see chronographs? Will we see striking mechanisms? Will we see, I don't know, you, you, you tell me, what will we see? I, I don't know because I'm still writing that book. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm attracted to watches that are not overly complicated. I've I worked on very high complicated uh minute repeaters with Westminster chiming, ground complications, that sort of thing. And uh, indeed, while I was working with uh, Christophe Clara, uh, after my time at Audemars Piguet, uh, I was uh, developing those calibers. Uh, so I, I know them very intimately. I, I love working on them. But I, I think there's something really nice about having a mechanism where clients can see what's happening. And uh, you can have... Um, that can be very hard when it's something that's very, very complicated uh, to see everything and things can be concealed under bridges or under dials. Uh, there's something almost poetic about uh, seeing the mechanism that is simple but executed very elegantly with a lot of finishing and everything like that. That's what I like about turbines, for example. A high level of finishing with a very, very simple function in, in it in its way it's not just doing something very complicated but it's doing it very elegantly yeah i think not overly complicated mechanisms are what i see in the immediate future but i'd never say no to doing a miniature beach or, or watches like that because uh i i could have an idea that i haven't had yet that would be nice to see or nice to hear should i say that that'd be lovely uh talking to tourbillons uh controversial well, I don't even know. Do we call it a complication? Some people say it's a complication. Some people say I don't. No, I don't. No, me neither. Um, but yeah, for the general parlance, I guess it is what it is. I call them a, a difficulty. Uh, <laughs> a consternation. Yeah, exactly. Well, there are, um, you know, again, it's a, it's a really elegant solution to a problem that we don't have anymore. And uh, they're beautiful. And when they're done properly, they're they're tricky to do. They're uh it gives a, a watchmaker a lot of satisfaction to work in a very, very fine tourbillon and get it working well. When people ask me like what a tourbillon is, I sort of say it's the most watchmaking e-complication in the world in that nothing that we do in fine watchmaking these days is really as necessary as it once was. You know, we have electronic timers and, uh, you know, quartz timekeepers all around the world and they are incredibly functional and incredibly accurate and blah 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 whatever but mechanical watchmaking still exists for a very good reason of the heart and the tourbillon like you said so elegantly has solves a problem that no longer exists effectively but to be able to create one and to get it humming along perfectly is just such a wonderful star for which to reach so many watchmakers find themselves obsessed by it and talking of those many watchmakers that have created tourbillons in the past which one springs to mind as your favorite and what is it about that particular execution of a tourbillon that you like you can name a few of course i'm not going to hold you to one choice but mm. give, give the listeners an idea of which ones really really sing to you well uh, two tourbillons that jump out of me one would be my one of my favorite wristwatches period and it's the global force invention piece one i think that is it's kind of a perfect watch uh they have this really clever 30 33 30 degree angle double tourbillon but it's the it's not so much what the tourbillon is or what it does i just think uh, it's the way it's shown the way it's displayed uh the tourbillon is standing proud of the the, the movement the display is kind of integrated back into the main plate or it sort of appears and it's just uh and then you've got that big bold slash of a top tourbillon bridge that is not beveled in areas where you would expect it to be and then perfectly and heavily beveled in everywhere else uh, so it's it's just such a bold statement. It's such a beautiful watch. And uh, the other one, uh, a company I really, really like, but you don't hear that much about, is uh, Moritz Grossman. And uh, they make uh, a really stunning, large tourbillon with a very, very well-designed dial. And I just think that it is constructed more like a, a pocket watch. And it's almost edging towards a, a pocket watch rather than a, a wrist watch. It, just 
has the look and feel of a handmade watch about it, more so than a lot of um, contemporary wristwatches. So those two I would single out. I should add as well that I, I, I'm i very fortunate to do an awful lot of uh, historic pocket watch tourbillons. And uh, it's very, for their impact, it's very, very difficult to match those. Like uh, the bigger a tourbillon is, the more impactful it is visually. And uh, they're just uh, some of the finest watches I've ever, ever had the pleasure to work on. What a great answer. Absolutely uh, unexpected um, on both fronts. I have to say that uh, Grubel Force is um, a beast, 44 millimeters wide, 17 millimeters thick. But I think the watch maybe ever that makes the most of 17 millimeters of thickness with the depth that it allows the tourbillon and that enormous slashing bridge that you described running from around the nine o'clock to around the six o'clock marker it is certainly a striking piece and uh, a snip at only 540,000 francs when the 33 pieces were available. So yeah, I uh, get saving up for that. Interesting that you bring up Moritz Grossman. I don't know if you know this, but I live in Dresden, not too far away from Glasserton. Oh, no, it's <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've i got a soft spot for Moritz Grossman, despite uh, Moritz Grossman not having a soft spot for me. Really pissed off the CEO um, a couple of years ago when I was there interviewing her, and I wouldn't drop my line of questioning into why she thought it was wise to produce so many, well, glib and cheap special editions and i don't mean that monetarily i mean that like Hmm. aesthetically and stylistically uh and uh in terms of the subject upon which they're focused when the core collection of Moritz grossman is one of the finest core collections in the industry that does not get enough exposure whatsoever there's so many good models and yeah the the tourbillons from the bennu collection and my particular favorites the hamatic and uh the gmt's I think that they're divine and I think that the hand style and the heat treatment of the hands, which takes generally the hands a little bit further than the blue that you'd normally get to a rich violet yeah, shade. O- it's it's gorgeous, right? Yeah. Especially against the German silver movements, you know, the purple of the screws on those, you know, slightly yellowish silvered movements. Oh my God, it's, it's heaven. But no, I said to Christine uh, Hutter, the CEO, who is she making this annual Super Bowl special edition for, if not for me. I'm like a huge American football fan. I have been a fan since I was three years old, a complete encyclopedia of the last 57 years of Super Bowl era history, and obviously a watch nerd. And I said, if there is one person in the world I could imagine this watch being tailor-made for, it would be me. Every year you release a Super Bowl watch with Moritz Grossman's amazing mechanics on the back and some god awful partially cut through dial with a cheap football motif on the front and the final score and a couple of team colors splashed on there and i think honestly what is this nonsense how are you putting that into the limelight and allowing that to get the headlines when you have such incredible beauty like the tourbillons you're describing right there barely spoken about in the collection so yeah i agree with you moritz grossman is amazing one day I hope Moritz Grossman thinks I'm amazing too, but that certainly is not today. <laughs> yeah, so some some serious watchmaking beef going on there. No, it's all in good fun. Yeah. I'm sure she's not really. I'm sure she doesn't lose any sleep. As you described the the movements with the that kind of that purple uh, color and the untreated uh, German silver, and also the 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 bridges that are pillar mounted, which. When have you last seen that? Um, you know, there's kind of a 19th century feel to the watches, and I I love them for that. They're um, they feel properly handmade. You know, it's uh, uh, they're wonderful. Yeah, it, it really is, and they're doing great stuff. I didn't go to Glasgow that day with the intention of. Uh, annoying Moritz Grossman. I went there because I was very curious to see what was actually going on inside that enormous factory that they built about 10 years ago now, I guess. This factory that looks like a crashed spaceship that just nestles on the opposite side of the Miglitz River running through Glasseter and dominates that hillside. What was going on inside it, I thought, because we never saw people entering it. We never saw people leaving it. It was a bit like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, like the chimneys. I was just going to say. 
no joke no joke like we thought like what are they doing how many people could possibly be in there because it's enormous and the truth of the matter is it's barely populated there's about 40 people working there they could have 300 in that building probably but it's planned for the future as the brand is intended to grow and given what their core offering is it really should but enough about moritz grossman your choices of the best tourbillons that you've seen in the industry really surprised and captivated me because of how say off the beaten track at least at least the Moritz Grossman pick was and so I'm curious what other brands do you like Torbjorn's aside but what other things really impress you in the industry and who's doing stuff that you think that our listeners should pay attention to after they've bought on their lawn of course oh yeah well <laughs> that's where you start uh, I think uh, there's an awful lot of uh, there are very many independents out there that are doing really extraordinary thing I'll always be a fan of Kari Futilainen's work I think there's a I've hardly seen a watch of his I didn't like. Uh, I, I don't know how he produces so many very diverse watches. Uh, it could be between the cases, the dials, working with different artists, that sort of thing. And at the same time, he, at the drop of a hat, will do a one-off movement. It could be a decent escapement. He'd do one-off tourbillons. He, he just seems to cater, have the ability to cater for everybody and not compromise the look or feel of his watches at all. Like They're all unmistakably Kari Vutilainen's, and I think there's a real bravery in the way he works as well. You've got some extraordinary young independents. You've got a Peterman Beda. The quality of what they do, it, it would embarrass a lot of very uh, established brands. The, the watches are they're so beautifully made and finished. A sports tourbillon uh, that came out. It was nominated for the uh, GPHG Awards. Oh, Theo Offray? Yes. Uh, his tourbillon there, again, it's, uh, you might see a trend here. It has that vintage look to the movement, the way it's created. It's, uh, you know, with the, the finish on the, the main plates. But just the architecture, it's, not dissimilar to a Global 4C and its architecture, uh, but I, I just love the way it's made and the way it's finished. And I can see quite a bit of you in here, actually, to be honest. You know, like there's some similar shapes and, you know, the sort of level dials mm. and the sapphires. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Very nice. It did get a mention in one of our earliest episodes. I can't remember if it was episode one or two, but we did a rundown of all of the GPHG nominees. And uh, we we both noticed this piece. We didn't pick it as our winner in the category, but we noticed it. There was something about it that really stood out and it got an honorable mention from us even then. And I think uh, Ofray's reputation is set to grow in the coming years, no? I think so. I, I think it's just the architecture of the piece is really what works for me, but uh, it, it's just got some lovely traditional techniques and it's a real platform to show watchmaking. It works so well as a result of that, you know. So you seem to be a, a fan of German silver, as I am, because this one, again, uses German silver as like the, the canvas upon which all those great mechanics are set. So nice looking thing, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I mean, it, it does appeal to me, which wouldn't be a, uh, a defining requirement for me, um, of more established, not more established brands, but bigger brands. It's a new brand, Um uh, but uh, Ferdinand Bertou. Oh, yeah. Love it. Of course, it's an old name. Their watches, I think, are really spectacular. I think it's laudable uh, when uh, a big established brand, because it's it's backed by uh, Chopin, and uh, it's just an incredible project. Um, I suppose it's a different time and things have changed, but uh, it would be much the same as when uh, Lange was resurrected uh mm. back in the 90s um and uh, uh a very different type of watch but it was a very different era as well yeah and uh but i think the ferdinand bear two watches it's it's very very impressive watchmaking it is indeed some of my favorites especially the way that they uh regularly hide tourbillons on the back because that's where i like a tourbillon to be yeah. i don't need it to be on the dial oftentimes i like it hidden away and just that pure watchmaking I absolutely agree with that. I think uh, that appeals to me a lot more as well. It's I, I love. Uh, it's what I love about pocket watches. Uh -huh. It's a very 
ordinary looking watch until you turn it over, you open up the back and there you're hit with this very pure mechanism that doesn't have any distraction with hands or dials or anything like that. You can, there's only one thing to really look at and it's the tourbillon. Yeah. I always thought that it just expressed like the true spirit of watchmaking that so much effort and so much time has been put into something that no one is intended to see and it's there for the wearer. I mean, I'm I'm sure when you were studying as, as it was the case when I was studying that finishing components on the dial side, normally hidden by a dial, of course, was something that we all took great pleasure in and something that was like preached as like, you know, really the core principle of proper watchmaking, like everything gets the full works. It doesn't matter if it's just a show stopping component or a, a dial element it has to be done properly whether it's a setting lever or a crown wheel or you name it like a a, a date jumper whatever it is it has to be done as well as it can be done and i guess that's why i like the smoked sapphire as a compromise because a lot of those like hidden elements on the dial you know they go unnoticed and unspoken about but seeing those pieces just a hint of them it's just a nice reminder that uh, care and attention has been taken in every possible way when it comes to those watches in particular and Ferdinand Bateau does that very very well you mentioned of course it's times are changing and uh, it's a different industry now than it was in the 90s and even it was in the in the early 2000s but what have you noticed as a watchmaker on the front line for the last 35 years what's the biggest difference about the watch industry now than uh, from when you started working in it when I started, uh, it was just that the watchmaking was recovering from the quartz revolution. So mechanical watchmaking was decimated. And uh, when companies started remaking um, complications, it was like an arms race to see how many complications you could fit in the watch. And uh, uh, an awful lot of the thinking was misplaced. And you'd see... You, you know, you'd open up watches with multiple complications and they, they were terrible. Uh, they were badly made, badly designed and uh, appallingly finished. And uh, gradually, over the years, that has improved. I think quality is very, very high now. Um, and um, refreshingly, I think uh, there's more of a tendency towards, uh, rather than high complications, uh, interpretations of single complications and uh you could have uh, the chronograph reinterpreted the Gronofels have done it mbnf have done a superb job with steve mcdonald um, um you could have you could you could have a, a single complication as i described earlier on just done in a very kind of poetic, very simple way. And I think there's that's a, a very good trend that uh, people are not just trying to pack as many functions into the watch as possible. They're trying to uh, just express a function or express a complication in a new way. Uh, it could be a new display, it could be a new architecture, uh, it could be a new way of finishing things. But it has to be done well, and it has to be well designed. And I think a lot of that is has made its way into the independence as well, because uh, it's an area where you can see the greatest amount of courage and bravery, because people are, you know, they don't have to find a, they don't have to take care of a, an established brand image. They can take chances, and. Um, so I think there are an awful lot of very uh, adventurous watches being made out there. And I think they're selling those watches into a ready uh, market because that's the other thing that's changed an awful lot. Uh, collectors are far more educated now than they, they were back then. And there's a, they really understand what they're looking at. And it's... For, for watchmakers who who really pride the work they do, uh, there are an increasing number of collectors out there to 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 buy their work. 
So I think it's a it's a very good period in watchmaking. I think it's we're very lucky. And what's the state of the Irish industry itself? Uh, is there still a training college in Dublin for young watchmakers, aspiring watchmakers? And if if so, or if not, either way, what would be a word of advice from you, something you've learned throughout your career that you would pass on to the next generation? Uh, there isn't uh, the watchmaking. We had a watchmaking school that both myself, my two brothers, I have another brother, uh, Anthony, who uh, is working in Cambodia at the moment as a watchmaker. Uh, the three of us uh, went to the same school in Blanchardstown. And uh, it closed down, I think, in 2003, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the talk that I'm, the two talks I'm giving both this month and next month, uh, the whole idea of it was driven by uh, the want to reestablish watchmaker training here in Ireland. So I, I hold out hope that we can restart it. Um, for anyone who would like to get into a watchmaker, into watchmaker training, uh, I think any of the wall step schools would be uh, very good. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's very good training at the moment. That's probably the best and easiest way to get into it at the moment. And uh, there are a number of them worldwide, of course. Uh, yeah, as regards uh, watchmakers who are in the process of being trained, uh, the advice I've always given and will continue to give is uh, just get the job that will give you the most experience as early as you can and just keep on striving for uh, getting exposure to good experience, both in learning techniques and learning complications and that sort of thing. And it ends up in a very, very rewarding profession if, if you follow that route rather than you know, learn the skills. <laughs> Fine advice and a, a fine point upon which to end the interview. John, thanks for your time and thanks for your patience in the uh, early stages of our talk today. It's getting everything sorted on the technical side of things. That was really, really kind of you. And for our listeners who I'm sure have enjoyed this fascinating episode, if you have any questions for John, you can get in touch via the usual channels. You can contact me either on Instagram at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or via email, which is rob at therealtime.show, or you can contact my co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, on Instagram at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or via email, that's alan at therealtime.show. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.